In the building supposed to have been the quarters of the Roman garrison, many of the walls were covered with such attempts at caricature as the specimen just given, to some of which were appended opprobrious epithets and phrases. The name of the personage above portrayed was Nonius Maximus, who was probably a martinet centurion, odious to his company, for the name was found in various parts of the enclosure, usually accompanied by disparaging words. Many of the soldiers had simply chalked their own names, others had added the number of their cohort or legion, precisely as in the late war soldiers left records of their stay on the walls of fort and hospital. A large number of these wall chalkings in red, white, and black, most of them in red, were clearly legible fifty years after exposure. I give another specimen, a genuine political caricature, copied from an outside wall of a private house in Pompeii. The allusion is to an occurrence in local history of the liveliest possible interest to the people. A few years before the fatal eruption there was a fierce town and country row in the amphitheater, in which the Pompeians defeated and put to flight the provincial Nasirians. Nero condemned the pugnacious men of Pompeii to the terrible penalty of closing their amphitheater for ten years. In the picture an armed man descends into the arena bearing the palm of victory, while on the other side a prisoner is dragged away bound. The inscription alone gives us the key to the street artist's meaning, Campani Victoria una cum Nisirinis Peristis, men of Campania, you perished in the victory not less than the Nisirians, as though the patriotic son of Campania had written, we be M, but very little we got by it. If the idlers of the streets chalked caricature on the walls, we cannot be surprised to discover that Pompeian artists delighted in the comic and burlesque. Comic scenes from the plays of Terence and Plautus, with the names of the characters written over them, have been found, as well as a large number of burlesque scenes in which dwarfs, deformed people, pygmies, beasts, and birds are engaged in the ordinary labors of men. The gay and luxurious people of the buried cities seem to have delighted in nothing so much as in representations of pygmies for there was scarcely a house in Pompeii yet uncovered which did not exhibit some trace of the ancient belief in the existence of these little people. Homer, Aristotle, and Pliny all discourse of the pygmies as actually existing, and the artists, availing themselves of this belief, which they shared, employed it in a hundred ways to caricature the doings of men of larger growth. Pliny describes them as inhabiting the salubrious mountainous regions of India, their stature about twenty-seven inches, and engaged in eternal war with their enemies, the geese. They say, Pliny continues, that, mounted upon rams and goats, and armed with bows and arrows, they descend in a body during springtime to the edge of the waters, where they eat the eggs and the young of those birds, not returning to the mountains for three months. Otherwise they could not resist the ever-increasing multitude of the geese. The pygmies live in cabins made of mud, the shells of goose eggs, and feathers of the same bird. Homer, in the third book of the Iliad, alludes to the wars of the cranes and pygmies. So when inclement winters vex the plain, with piercing frosts, or thick descending rain, to warmer seas the cranes embodied fly, with noise and order through the midway sky, to pygmy nations wounds and death they bring, and all the war descends upon the wing. 
One of our engravings shows that not India only, but Egypt also, was regarded as the haunt of the pygmy race, for the Upper Nile was then, as now, the home of the hippopotamus, the crocodile, and the lotus. Here we see a bald-headed pygmy hero riding triumphantly on a mighty crocodile, regardless of the open-mouthed, bellowing hippopotamus behind him. In other pictures, however, the scaly monster, so far from playing this submissive part, is seen plunging in fierce pursuit of a pygmy, who flies headlong before the foe. Frescoes, vases, mosaics, statuettes, paintings, and signet rings found in the ancient cities all attest the popularity of the little men. The odd pair of vases on the following page, one in the shape of a boar's head, and the other in that of a ram's, are both adorned with a representation of the fierce combats between the pygmies and the geese. There has been an extraordinary display of erudition in the attempt to account for the endless repetition of pygmy subjects in the houses of the Pompeians, but the learned and acute M. Champfleury humbly hazards a conjecture, as he modestly expresses it, which commends itself at once to general acceptance. He thinks these pygmy pictures were designed to amuse the children. No conjecture could be less erudite or more probable. We know, however, as a matter of record, that the walls of taverns and wine shops were usually adorned with pygmy pictures, such subjects being associated in every mind with pleasure and gaiety. It is not difficult to imagine that a picture of a pugilistic encounter between pygmies, like the one given at the head of this chapter, or a fanciful representation of a combat of pygmy gladiators, of which many have been discovered, would be both welcome and suitable as tavern pictures in the Italian cities of the classic period. The Pompeians, in common with all the people of antiquity, had a childlike enjoyment in witnessing representations of animals engaged in the labors or the sports of human beings. A very large number of specimens have been uncovered, some of them gorgeous with the hues given them by masters of coloring 1800 years ago. In the following cut is a specimen of these a representation of a grasshopper driving a chariot, copied in 1802 from a Pompeian work for an English traveler. Nothing can exceed either the brilliancy or the delicacy of the coloring of this picture in the original, the splendid plumage of the bird and the bright gold of the chariot shaft, and will being relieved and heightened by a gray background and the greenish-brown of the course. The colorists of Pompeii have obviously influenced the taste of Christendom. There are few houses of pretension decorated within the last quarter of a century, either in Europe or America, which do not exhibit combinations and contrasts of color of which the hint was found in exhumed Pompeii. One or two other small specimens of this kind of art, selected from a large number accessible, may interest the reader. The spirited air of the team of cocks and the nonchalant professional attitude of the charioteer will not escape notice. Perhaps the most interesting example of this propensity to personify animals which the exhumed cities have furnished us is a burlesque of a popular picture of Aeneas escaping from Troy, carrying his father, Anchises, on his back, and leading by the hand his son, Ascanius, the old man carrying the casket of household gods. No scene could have been more familiar to the people of Italy than one which exhibited the hero whom they regarded as the founder of their empire in so engaging a light, and to which the genius of Virgil had given a deathless charm.
thus ordering all that prudence could provide. I clothe my shoulders with a lion's hide and yellow spoils, then on my bending back. The welcome load of my dear father take, while on my better hand Ascanius hung, and with unequal paces tripped along. Artists found a subject in these lines, and of one picture suggested by them two copies have been found carved upon stone. This device of employing animals' heads upon human bodies is still used by the caricaturist, so few are the resources of his branch of art, and we cannot deny that it retains a portion of its power to excite laughter. If we may judge from what has been discovered of the burlesque art of the ancient nations, we may conclude that this idea, poor as it seems to us, was the one which the artists of antiquity most frequently employed. It was also common with them to burlesque familiar paintings, as in the instance given. It is not unlikely that the cloyed and dainty taste of the Pompeian connoisseur perceived something ridiculous in the too familiar exploit of Father Aeneas as represented in serious art, just as we smile at the theatrical attitudes and costumes in the picture of Washington crossing the Delaware. Fancy that work burlesqued by putting an eagle's head upon the father of his country, filling the boat with magpie soldiers, covering the river with icebergs, and making the oars still more ludicrously inadequate to the work in hand than they are in the painting. Thus a caricaturist of Pompeii, Rome, Greece, Egypt, or Assyria would have endeavored to cast ridicule upon such a picture. Few events of the last century were more influential upon the progress of knowledge than the chance discovery of the buried cities, since it nourished a curiosity respecting the past which could not be confined to those excavations, and which has since been disclosing antiquity in every quarter of the globe. We call it a chance discovery, although the part which accident plays in such matters is more interesting than important. The digging of a well in 1708 let daylight into the amphitheater of Herculaneum, and caused some languid exploration, which had small results. Forty years later, a peasant at work in a vineyard five miles from the same spot struck with his hoe something hard, which was too firmly fixed in the ground to be moved. It proved to be a small statue of metal, upright, and riveted to a stone pedestal, which was itself immovably fastened to some solid mass still deeper in the earth. Where the hoe had struck the statue the metal showed the tempting hue of gold, and the peasant, after carefully smoothing over the surface, hurried away with a fragment of it to a goldsmith, intending, so runs the local gossip, to work this opening as his private gold mine. But as the metal was pronounced brass, he honestly reported the discovery to a magistrate, who set on foot an excavation. The statue was found to be a Minerva, fixed to the center of a small roof-like dome, and when the dome was broken through it was seen to be the roof of a temple, of which the Minerva had been the topmost ornament. And thus was discovered, about the middle of the last century, the ancient city of Pompeii, buried by a storm of light ashes from Vesuvius 1670 years before.